listening to Skylight, the Skylight Books podcast. Skylight Books is a general interest bookstore in the Los Feliz neighborhood in Los Angeles. You can shop with us from 10 a.m. to 10 p.m. or visit us online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. Follow along at Skylight Books Instagram and Twitter. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening, and now on to the episode. Welcome to the Skylight Bookstore Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Blackburn, and I'm here in Los Angeles, California. Now, tonight, we are so excited to have author Katie Love with us talking about her brand new book, Two Tickets to Paradise, From Cult to Comedy. Now, Katie is the producer of Laugh Gallery. It's a new series by Crew West Studios, and she also is a comedian who plays comedy clubs all over the country, as well as she is a writing coach. So we're extremely happy to have Katie on the show today. She's going to be reading from her new memoir, Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy, that you, of course, can get right here at Skylight Books. Head over to skylightbooks.com, your favorite neighborhood bookstore, no matter where you live. You love us and we love you. And so thanks for supporting us. And that's where we want you to buy Katie's book. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce Katie Love to you. And after her reading, we'll go ahead and do a, a short conversation together and uh, enjoy. All right. Wherever you are, you guys, please welcome the fabulous Katie Love. Thank you, Christine. I so appreciate it. I'm really excited to be here. And uh, today I'm going to actually start, uh, I'm going to do a linear reading and I'm going to start with chapter one. Make it a little easy on myself. Uh, chapter one of Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy. Uh, and this chapter is uh, titled Picking Fruit in Paradise. The first time that I realized that my inherited childhood religion was not for me, I was standing at a stranger's door, feeling like a quick draw cowgirl, my right hand resting ever so slightly on the latest copies of The Watchtower and Awake, waiting listening for the faintest sign of interest. I was poised and ready to whip out the latest editions and twirl them around, hoping that someone might be interested. I was poised, ready. I pointed to a picture of paradise, which usually consisted of savage beasts, now docile, co-mingling with domesticated humans near a waterfall. The domesticated humans wore suits sundresses, and a glazed-over expectant smile, while busily picking fruit, which as a child always disturbed me. Why was everyone picking fruit, and why were they doing it in their dress clothes? I'd seen farmers harvesting their crops in the middle of a hot day. It didn't look like paradise to me. The stranger that turned my childhood beliefs upside down was a long and lean musician type, devastatingly handsome, shirtless, sweaty, oozing sin, his hip bones just barely caressing the top of his jeans. He had dirty, mangled hair, the kind of hair one gets when they're brilliant and tortured, 
too creatively inspired to engage in something as common as grooming. He looked deep into my eyes and let his gaze travel slowly over the rest of my body, over my pastel-colored sundress and my thick, flesh-colored nylons that met up with sensibly heeled sandals. I gulped. Hello, how are you today? I'm good, baby, how are you? He answered, reaching up into the door frame as if searching for a hidden key, stretching, seductive, cat-like. Um, I, I, I'm pretty good too, <laughs> nice day. Real nice, he purred. What can I do for you, pretty girl? So uncool, man. How could I do it? How could I tell him that I was a Jehovah's Witness there to share a Bible thought? Ew, who cared about that? I wanted to share anything but the Bible with this stranger. I wanted to lose myself in his filthy hair and sing folk songs and drink moonshine, if that's what he was offering. I wanted to burn 666 in his and take a Polaroid, send it to the JW headquarters. But then it hit me. He's not as important as seeing her again. Nothing was as important as that. I had to keep the faith whether it made sense or not. I had to do everything perfectly if I ever wanted to see her name again or see her again because he was watching. Not to mention, I didn't recognize any of the stirrings in my body or why my face was on fire or why my voice was quivering. I could only trust what I'd been taught. Faith is the assured expectation of things hoped for. Oh, and how I hope to see her again. Reluctantly, but with practice skill, robotic skill, I reached into my bag and pulled out the latest and greatest editions of the Watch, Share, and Awake and said, I'm here to share a Bible thought. Have you ever thought about living in paradise? I winced, waiting for the laugh or the standard. I'm not interested. But what I heard instead was, maybe, will you be there, baby? I'd like to share some paradise with you. Laughter from another room, a waft of sweet smoke, a yank of my arm, a closing door, more laughter, and there I was, standing in the middle of a bright, sunny day on a banal suburban street, my reality altered, carnal questions rushing through my veins. Sister, snapped the senior citizen zealot that had lost me a few houses back. Never go to the door alone. It's very dangerous. That man was not interesting, interested in hearing the truth. I took a long look at my elderly companion who had spent her entire life shuffling from door to door, speaking the truth to strangers on their porches, their front yards, and their living rooms. Strangers who had stopped washing their car for a moment, turned down the radio long enough to be polite and utter over a barking dog, no thank you. Strangers who were despondent or just plain tired, wearily chasing their kids around, who would ask just who she thought she was to interrupt their day. Strangers who had invited her in and read along from their own Bibles, searching for answers, wary of this thing called the truth, and the possibility of living forever. I looked into her piercing blue eyes of servitude and without hesitation said, no one cares, this is dumb. Wait in the car, she replied curtly. Clearly, you need more Bible study. I was 12 years old, and I had experienced an epiphany. The truth does not necessarily set you free. That's chapter one, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, that is, you know, it's just, it's so fascinating to talk to, to people who have grown up in cults. I think so too. I gravitate towards the subject because, you know, you're always asking yourself, what happened? You know, <laughs> how did this happen? And they just one day wander into it. And in my case, you know, my mother um, 
And we talked about this before that my mother committed suicide and I was nine years old. And I went to go live with my sister after that. And she became my legal guardian. And my sister had just started studying with Jehovah's Witnesses and was very zealous in it. So it wasn't a week past the, the, the moment that I'd found my mother uh, dead that she showed me pictures of all these docile uh, animals lazing by a river and said, this is paradise. Do you want to see mom again, happy, hanging out in paradise? And that's why I named it Two Tickets to Paradise and then added the, the whole, you know, from cult to comedy because it really was for me that commitment level set in right at that moment. Of course, I wanted to see my mother happy again. What nine-year-old wouldn't? You know, so at that point, I took on this big job. There, I'm going to get to see my mother again, whatever it took. And yeah. therein lies the hilarity because it was just like me trying to be a perfect little Jehovah's Witness. I take the reader through, you know, this, this, uh, this tween stage. I actually back the story up uh, to when I was nine years old, when I lost her. And having to, the next chapter is actually having to give up Dark Shadows. Now, Dark Shadows was like my babysitter. It was like my built-in babysitter, you know? Like I would run home to watch this crazy soap opera in the 70s of these vampires and all this carnage, you know? And, and, and I had to give that up because that wasn't in alignment with the, the witness beliefs and they were about demons and all that. And I remember that was the first thing that I felt like I really had to give up in order to be this perfect Jehovah's Witness in order to hopefully see my mother again in this paradise, you know, utopian condition. So it's it's got a lot of fun in this book, a lot of funny, but, you know, some harrowing moments for a kid. And then also, of course, seeing some of the dark side of what it was to be in this religion and suffer some of its of its abuse, unfortunately. So yeah, I'm always drawn to those cult stories too. Like what the heck happened to this person? Like as if I, and I think I'm kind of jaded. Like I feel like I should know that, right? But I'm always like, tell me your story. What happened? Well, you know, you just said so much. So let's back up. You're a child. I mean, all of this, it sounds like child abuse to me. I mean, it really does. It, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> you know, and- but let's back up. What happened to your mom? What happened? Was she well, unhappy? You, she must have been very unhappy when you were a child. Well, my mother, uh, I think, you know, looking back and knowing what we know about mental health and, and just knowing some of the diagnoses of today's uh, psychology and some of the science that's come forward about mental health, I can look back and say she was probably bipolar, most definitely an alcoholic. And she was a very creative person. She played the piano. Um, she was actually working in an insurance agency, I believe, which probably wasn't the best fit. But I used to sit under her grand piano and listen to her play. It's amazing that I still have hearing to this day. We had a we had a baby grand piano in our in our apartment in Oakland, California. And you should just was kind of a tortured soul. And I have a lot of scenes in there about how I was kind of her little militant uh, nurse slash favorite audience member, you know, her built-in fan base, but I would literally put her to bed at night and say, you have to work tomorrow, and, um, you know, you've got to go to bed right now, and that's the way it is, and I remember having to call in sick for her, 
And one time I called in sick, I was so frustrated that I had to call in sick for her because she would be, you know, still really hung over in the morning. And I'm like seven, eight years old and I'm calling in sick. And one time I remember calling in sick and saying, she's been bit by a vampire. She can't come in. <laughs> you know, because I was watching all this, like, you know, this, this, these terrible, uh, not terrible. I mean, I, I, I would love to see all of them again. Someone told me there was a whole CD set out of Dark Shadows, and I'm like, I gotta go get that. That's, oh yeah, that'd be that's so funny. Be part of my world, but you know, so that's the condition that everything was in, and so she suicide before uh, a couple of years prior to when she was finally successful at it, wow. which was pretty t harrowing at that point because she wanted me to hook up a hose to the back of of the car and, uh, or she wanted me to go find a hose so she could hook it up to the car. And I was searching around for this hose in the middle of the night and then she drove off. And then uh, she told me not to call anybody until the clock turned, you know, 6 a.m. or something. And I called as soon as she left. And it's was just unbelievable. Get, you know, so it was, there was a lot of abuse, you know, in that sense that I was the one taking care of her because my siblings had already left the house. They were 10 and 14 years older than me. You and know, so they were already no gone. dad, no, no dad around. And my father, um, he actually left when I was uh, two. So that marriage didn't work out. But my siblings share a father and we have different fathers, the same mother, obviously, but we, we share different, we, we have different fathers. So that's, oh. so we're, we, we tease each other that, you know, you're my half brother. Uh, I don't speak to my sister anymore because she's still a Jehovah's Witness and that's, <sighs> that's their law, you know, that's their ruling that you can't speak to, to ex Jehovah's witnesses. So that seems to be the yeah. law across a lot of cults. You know, mm -hmm. they, if, if, if somebody leaves the cult, then they are no longer family to you. That's the thing. And that's the carrot. You know, it's like, if you leave this religion, you are going to leave, you're losing your family. So it's yeah. a, it's a big decision to make. And I stayed in it until I was 30 years old. And, you know, so from nine to 30, I was under this tyranny and I love the way that I left it because I, I left it, you know, the, the thing that the, the witnesses say that keeps you, you know, connected to the religion is, you know, don't you want to live in paradise? What a groovy place this is to, to, to live in. And they get that from a scripture that talks about that God will restore the earth to its natural state of paradise as he created it. Of course, now I say he, she created it. Um, <laughs> I just like to change that up a little bit. But, um, but who wants they... to live in that paradise where there's no internet? Thank you. Or, you know, and everybody's picking fruit all the live long day. Does that sound like paradise to you? I, I, don't think so. I don't like the heat and I don't like fruit flies. I don't feel like it's paradise. But yeah, so the whole thing is, is you know, you most of these cults do have that in common where you lose your family if you leave. You know, Scientology has that. I mean, almost every cult that I can think of right now has that. And I mean, I define cult as any religion that separates you from your family yeah. and tells you that you can't be with your blood. You know, this wow. is, that's, a, that's, really, that's really intense. And to me, that kind of um, sacrifice aka commitment that they want that's culty because you know and it's it's a man-made belief those people that you know follow the bible and and want to live by those principles that's not the golden rule and there's nothing in there about like i don't know how that comes to be but i think it's a game of power 
yeah. uh, you know, that's, that's how I, that's how I understand it, but I'm so just glad just, to well, have well, written this. I'm thrilled that you wrote this book. It's amazing. Again, you guys get two tickets to paradise from cult to comedy, get it right here at skylight books, skylightbooks.com. But let me ask you, Katie, it's just like, you were so set up to be in a cult because you were so young. Yeah. You'd had this massive tragedy and your sister was 10 years older. Do you know how she got into the cult? She was 14 years older and she had just had a baby. And, you know, I mean, I don't think she had it easy growing up with my mother as, you know, the parent, the main parent. Um, and I remember that, you know, they used to fight on the phone a lot and uh, they didn't see eye to eye on things. And I think that, you know, I don't want to speak for my sister, but I think she was just looking for a little hope, you know, and that is not a terrible thing, but that's how they get you. Everybody's now, primed they, for the, you know, to be groomed, to be uh, inducted into these kinds of things. It's not like everything's going great and somebody knocks on your door and they say, hey, I'd like to share a Bible thought about living in paradise. Isn't the world in a terrible condition? Are you feeling like, you know, you can't make it another day without a purpose? And part of your brain goes, yeah, tell me more, you know? But someone, I think, knocked on her door and that's how she, then she started studying with him. So the interesting thing is she was brand new to it, you know, when my mom died. And to lose a parent like that, it's a violent way to lose your parent. She, I would imagine, clung to it for hope. And she was newly married. She had a new baby. And, you know, I, and then she's all of a sudden she's got this nine year old who's used to watching, you know, hours and hours of Lucille Ball and Jerry Lewis and Dark Shadows. Those were my babysitters. Like, yeah. I was managing an alcoholic household. You know, I was doing the cooking. I was, you know, whatever. Well, I was no, doing. it. it, it it's unbelievable what you were doing for your mom. And then your sister takes you on. And now it's really like she has two children. Exactly. Like I think back and you know, what's interesting is when I was writing the book, I had so much more empathy for my sister. Oh because yeah. As I was writing it, I was learning more about, Hey, like I finally had the, like the distinction of, you know, and the and take on this nine-year-old. Can you, can yeah. you back up one second, Katie? You, you sure. cut out, you cut out. Sure. Yeah. I was thinking that when I wrote the book, I discovered a lot more uh, empathy for my sister, because mm -hmm. if you think about it, she was in her early twenties and she just took on this nine-year-old that was like running her own household. And I was like, you know, jamming to Motown tunes and doing whatever I wanted, except that I just had to, you know, manage my mother's alcoholism and try to get a meal prepared. You know, I, I, you were not having a good childhood. I wasn't having a great one. I tried to make the best of it. I had Barbies. I had a huge imagination. I've been a writer since as long as I can remember. I used to write little books for her and staple them on the side and do my own gross illustrations. I'm not an I'm not an artist, so that's hilarious. I, I wish that I could see these books now, um, but I remember handing them to her, trying to get her into a different state of mind, trying to get her to laugh, you know. And so it's no joke that after I got out of this cult, the first thing I turned to was comedy. <laughs> like yeah. I was like I went from one tyranny to the next, folks, is what I did. 
But so you were essentially a Jehovah's Witness all through your teenage years, all through your 20s. And yeah. so did you go to college? I did not. And that was one of my biggest dreams. I wanted to leave the religion and I wanted to go to college and I wanted to become a journalist. I was already a writer. I was uh, kind of a budding musician. I played a lot of guitar and sang and stuff. But I was really suppressed. And if you if you want to date in the Jehovah's Witness religion, then you're basically getting married. There's no dating because dating leads immediately to fornication. And there cannot be any fornication, 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 fornication. Really hoping that uh, in the post ops, uh, you know, when they when they when they produce this, we can do some reverb, fornication, <laughs> cation, cation. <laughs> but. So I think I've talked about this before where I was like, I started dating this son of an elder in the Jehovah's Witness religion around, I don't know, 15 and a half, 16. And dating means that you have a chaperone and that you're just, you know, everybody knows what you're doing and, you know, you're not by yourself. So I start dating this, this guy. Who was your chaperone? I just random like friends or whatever. And okay. then pretty soon we'd sort of sneak off by ourselves get some kissing in or whatever, but you don't date as a Jehovah's witness. They want you to get married. Like there's not long-term dating going on. You know, you're, if you start dating, you're going to be fornicating soon. So you better get married. And I got married at 16, two months before I turned 17. I was a teen bride. And um, he was like, someone asked me, this is so funny because someone asked me, well, how old was he? So, oh, and I never had never thought about this before I go. I think he was like right before 21. And they're like, so basically he was a pedophile. I'm like, well, you know, we had to go to the judge to get permission. <laughs> so we had to go to the judge to get permission to marry because I was so young. Katie, you, hilarious. it's like you were forced to grow up so fast. It seems like yeah. in the first 16 years of your life, you lived like three lives. Like you, everything was on fast speed. Like you didn't have a childhood. It's true, and, and but you don't really realize that when it's happening, but here's when you feel it. When you're around a family and they've got, say, a nine-year-old, and you look at that nine-year-old and you think about who you had to be at nine years old. Like, on the night that my mother died, I came out, uh, My I used to be called Kay. My full name is Catherine, but everybody called me Kay, and my mother called me that. It's I spelled it K-A-Y. And when I... And the night that she died, they were all in the living room and it was all this hush-hush discussion about whether or not I was going to be okay because I, I found my mother. And I didn't like that these grown-ups were in there talking about me and if I was okay and did I need to go to the hospital. I didn't like them thinking that I wasn't strong enough to handle what I'd seen. And I'm nine years old. Mm. And I walk into the room, I walk into the living room of my sister's house and I say, I'm fine. And I want to change my name. And my new name is Katie. And it's spelled K-A-T-I-E. And if you call me by the name K, I won't answer you. And I decided that Katie sounded like a really fun girl. And I was ready for some fun. And I never changed my name back. You know, and to do that is really wild. Like when I wrote that scene, I was struck by it. Like I, I think I cried. I think I sat here and cried. I yeah. just was like, you don't realize it when it's happening, you know, until you have something that offers you a comparison. It's like just crushing. 
it's like seeing a kid like that or like it's just like crushing the- you didn't even have your period yet <laughs> no i didn't i didn't i remember the day i got that um it's crazy so shit. then when you marry this person at the age of 16 yes. your sister says that's fine no actually you know this is really interesting my sister said listen she read me that scripture in corinthians and it's that one that love is long suffering love is not puffed up with pride love is love bears all things believes all things it's a scripture in, in corinthians and um she read me that scripture and she said i know you love rob like that but does he love you that way and if the answer is not yes you should not marry him because you have your whole life ahead of you and she gave me that advice and she was very kind about it, but very firm. Like, and I, the answer to her question was no, he doesn't love me like that. But to her, I said, of course he loves me that way. Cause I wanted to get the hell out of this house. And I wanted to get out of this religion. It was suffocating me. Now he was the son of an elder. Of course I was a Jehovah's witness. We were both baptized in the religion, but the right. We pretty can you much go back. Can you go back? You blacked out again. Sure. Go, but we were we were both in it, and then yeah, we were both Jehovah's Witnesses, and we were both baptized. But when we got married, we sort of backed out of the religion for a few years. Like we stopped going to meetings, and we just didn't show up. We were just kind of like having a groovy time by ourselves, and our friends were kind of in and out of the religion, sort of like we were. But it's not really a religion that you can't. You can't like start start celebrating Christmas or you can't like, you know, you're not going to have a fornicating like, you know, disco party at your house. So it's like you're kind of in this weird limbo. And then when I got divorced, which you're not supposed to get divorced in this religion, because they say the only reason to get divorced if, if you're Jehovah's Witness is if one of you has defiled the marriage bed, which is also based on some kooky scripture somewhere. And that's not what happened. I just felt suffocated and emotionally abused and we didn't get along and, and we were just weren't a match, you know? And Wait, how, uh, how long was that later? Cause it sounds like you had a bond for a minute there. That's for why you minute, got married. Yeah. And, but we were not mature enough to be married. So we were kind of at each other's throats. I was trying to grow up and here I'd been a writer all this time as a kid, you know, all the way up to my, my wedding day. And I stopped, I didn't write one word while we were married for three and a half years, not one word. I just did not know what I was doing. And I felt that I really understood on our honeymoon that I'd made a terrible mistake. I felt like I'd picked the wrong person. I didn't like the way he talked to me. Uh, He was immature, of course, he was only 20. What can we expect, right? And it was just a mistake, you know, obviously, but it did get me out of that house and it got me out of the religion for a while. But then when I got a divorce, I went back into it because I didn't want to lose my family and they were all I had. So I get a divorce. I moved to Placerville, California, AKA Hangtown, which is just this heinous little like mountain town. I'm sure the people that live there love it and God bless you for that. But I don't, I'm not a big lover of little small mountain towns with, a lot of gossip and nothing to do. Yeah, I understand, I do. <laughs> I just can't, I can't really connect to that. And so I lived there and I was in, going through this divorce and um, it was really weird. I had to go live with my sister again to get back on my feet. 
And I was hoping that I could just sort of live in that limbo space, you know, and be kind of non-religious. That's where I was happier. Mm -hmm. And she said, if you want to live in our house, you have to start going back to meetings and you have to come back to the Kingdom Hall and back to Jehovah's house. And you have to be a Jehovah's witness again. And I just was like, God, I barely knew what to do. And I started showing up at these meetings and reading the articles. And I was like, I hate this. Yeah. And at the time I was also working at this horrible bank. I was just telling this story the other day because it just cracks me up. And I was working at this bank called River City Bank, but I renamed it River Shitty Bank. <laughs> and we had to wear gunny sacks dresses and we would walk down these long hems would pick up branches and twigs and whatever. And I would go in to the bank with all this crap hanging off my dress and I was full thick like I am now. And my boobs would just ooze out of this dress. And I was the head teller. So it's like, um, I was doling out money uh, as fast as I could to these lumberjacks that would come in. And that one day I went up and I had, uh, I had a pork chop for lunch. And I uh, was very disappointed to find out that my shake and bake pork chop was missing the skin. It's like, bummer. Ate my pork chop, went down, back downstairs, got back to my teller uh, station, had you know a line of gorgeous lumberjacks out the door. It was like payday. <laughs> and one guy who was so cute comes up to the window and he goes, you've got a little something there. You got a little something on your... And I looked down and there's this pork chop skin completely covering my breast. Oh God. And I'm like, um, you just can't walk away from, there's no cool way to say, oh my God, I have a shake and bake pork chop skin on my breast. How's everybody doing? <laughs> you know, and I wasn't in comedy then, so I couldn't even have that as an outlet. I was just mortified. And then I soon quit that job and this manager asked me, well, why are you quitting? I said, because I don't want to wear these long dresses anymore. They're stupid. And of course, the men were all in suits. It was just so uh, misogynist. And um, that was my stint in, in, in Placerville. And I was there for a couple of years and uh, hung out with some cool Jehovah's Witnesses that played in a band. Oh, yeah. I, I found the only cool Jehovah's Witnesses in town. And they played in a band. And that's kind of what got me through that divorce in that period of time. But I was celibate for 10 years, all through my 20s. Wow. What a waste, ladies and gentlemen. No kidding. No kidding. Right? So then I went into comedy. I was just crazy. And all I talked about was sex. And I think that's all I'm still talking about. I'm still making up for lost time for that. <laughs> Let me ask you uh, a couple more things, and then we got to wrap it up. Um, is your sister, you said she's still in the cult. Is her daughter also in it? No, her daughter was not baptized, so she left a long time ago as well. And we're pretty close. Oh, we that's talk, great. Yeah, we don't talk about this a lot, but you know, she knows I've written the book. I think she's read it. I'm not quite sure if she's read the whole thing, but um, it's like she has her own story, but her story is different because she was never baptized. Sure. So she was able to kind of like leave a little more gracefully where I had to kind of like, you know, really, I, I don't think leaving anything is easy. So I don't want to say anything about her story or that it was easy. Right, I right. really don't know. But I, I mean, it was like, I was like, I'm leaving. I'm a fornicator. I need to be disfellowshipped. Like I left on Paradise Island in the Bahamas fornicating with a stranger who owned a banana boat. And then, 
so I, I had this like night of fornication on a white sanded beach in Paradise Island, which I thought was so apropos, you know, since that's what they promise, you know, don't you want to live in paradise? Like I'm in paradise now. No kidding. And, and then I think I've said this before a few times on stage about how after the act was over uh, in the Bahamas, when I fornicated with this lovely Islander, he stole my traveler's checks. Oh my and, God. Right. But I was not upset about it. I mean, this is a, you know, this was a, a resort city that was suffering and I didn't even think about that. It was a problem really. I yeah. just thought to myself, this is the wage sin pays. Like I was just like, wow. I was going to leave the religion. I fornicated. It's been 10 years. I'm out of here, baby. And I basically went back and left the religion after that. Well, I am so happy you were able to get out of it. Me and you too. Done so much. The book is fantastic. You guys, please check out Katie Love's book over at skylightbooks.com. Two tickets to paradise from cult to comedy. And thank you so much for this discussion, Katie. You are a wonderful, wonderful author. And, and we're just thank so you. glad you were able to share this with us. You guys can find out more about Katie at her website, writelaughlove.com. And remember, purchase two tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy at skylightbooks.com. We appreciate you shopping at Skylight Bookstore, your favorite neighborhood independent bookstore, even if you don't live here. Thank you so much for shopping at skylightbooks.com. All right, you guys, one more time on behalf of the very talented Katie Love. My name is Christine Blackburn saying thanks for listening to the Skylight Books podcast and read on. Thank you, Christine. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.